from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. So thank you very much for coming. It's great to see such a, a large audience this evening, and uh, we're really excited to be here to talk to you. Uh, just a very brief introduction to myself. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson. I'm from the University of Exeter. I'm a remote sensing scientist, and I use drones in my research. And I lead the Drone Lab Research Group at the University of Exeter. And can you hear me okay at the back as well? Awesome. Uh, my name's Dr. Karen Joyce. I'm from James Cook University in Cairns, northern Australia. So have come out here for a couple of weeks to do some work with Karen, but also, of course, to give this talk this evening and run a couple of workshops that we did this morning. So I'm going to tell you, first of all, why I love remote sensing, which is what I do, and a little bit about that. So I work a lot with satellite images, so what you might see on Google Earth, for example, and I really love that they give us information about the environment, and there's absolutely beautiful, beautiful pictures And one of the reasons why I do what I do is because I realised about 20 years ago when I was deciding what to study at university was that if I started looking at these pictures, I'd have to go out into the field to make sure that what's actually out there is what the satellite sees as well. So I realised that I could get someone to pay me to go scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef and I thought, well, that's just amazing. I can, I can go out in the field, I can go scuba diving, and I can look at beautiful images on my computer all day, every day. So that's why I do what I do, and it's why I love it as well. Thank you. So I'm going to take you to a slightly different place, which is a global picture of vegetation dynamics. And this is an image which is a compilation of many satellite images put together uh, to show us the changing vegetation system around the world. And these images and similar things to this were the things that inspired me to study remote sensing 20 or so years ago when I was an undergraduate um, studying at the University of Southampton. I was really intrigued by the way that we can see from space these patterns of vegetation changing through time. And I wanted to get hands-on and understand how we can use these data to better understand the land surface response to the changing climate that we're experiencing on Earth. And remote sensing, as Karen has said, is a fantastic field which combines physics with all kinds of other really interesting applied sciences, and particularly allows you to get out into the field to collect your own data to validate these observations that are provided at a global scale, albeit uh, sometimes at a relatively coarse grain so understanding the detail is really the devil of remote sensing. It's the difficult part to do, but it's the interesting thing, getting on the ground and collecting data that helps us to make sense and to validate these products collected by satellites. But one of the challenges that we have with satellite remote sensing is that it's not necessarily the best tool for every job. And what we see with this image here, so this is some of the some of the highest detail commercially available satellite data that we have, so just like what you'd see on Google Earth. But as you can see, it's got cloud contamination on it, so if I'm interested in seeing anything underneath those clouds, I have trouble. But also, if you continue to zoom in, say we'll go into this area just here, what we see is it's all pixelated, and it's really difficult to tell exactly what's going on there. We can use a different type of camera on the same satellite 
and get a little bit more detail, but it's black and white, so not that great. But then now we can use drones. And so this is the sort of detail that we can get from a drone instead. So up at about 400 feet compared to being up at six or 700 kilometres, for example. So this is some of the reasons why I enjoy working with drones now instead of just satellites, because I can get this incredible level of detail that we weren't previously able to get. And we, both Karen and I work with a number of different types of drones. And we work with ones that are sort of this big and large enough to carry a small child. But we also like to work with these really small systems that are pretty easy to put in a backpack, relatively cheap and off the shelf that we can make some minor, minor modifications to. So this is an example of a really small drone that both of us use. It's about 500 pounds and can carry a GoPro and does a lot of really good work for us in terms of not just taking pretty pictures, but getting scientific information with a number of different data sets that both Karen and I will talk about. But we use drones as part of, of a portfolio of different tools to answer the questions in which we're interested in. So if you think about satellites, for example, they cover the, the photos they take cover a really large area, which is fabulous if you're interested in some of the global dynamics that Karen was talking about initially. We're looking at all of the world, but you sacrifice a bit of detail. When you're in the field, maybe you're underwater or out in a rainforest, for example, you get a lot of detail where you're at, but on teeny tiny little places. So drones kind of fill that middle gap for us. So it allows us to not quite cover the large areas, but cover quite a bit of detail and get some, some significant coverage there as well. Thanks. So I would also add to that and say that uh, the other reason why I started using drones was because until drones came along six years ago or so, um, I was heavily relying on data provided by uh, piloted aircraft systems. So I was using laser scanners and aerial photographs, which cost an enormous amount of money to collect. And because I'm interested in vegetation dynamics, it means I need to be able to monitor the change in things over time, as we often do in many scientific and other applications. And to do that from a, a piloted aircraft is very expensive. We're talking tens of thousands of pounds per survey. But using the kind of drones that Karen has just shown you, consumer-grade systems that we can adapt for science, we can actually deliver very similar scientific data for a fraction of the cost and at a user-controlled um, time period, which means that we can be reactive to events and we can get out into the field when we actually need to collect data. So that's the other real beauty of the drone. So I'm just going to uh, throw a question out into the audience now, which is, um, can you think of uh, the most recent, <laughs> let's try to avoid the most obvious, but the most recent news stories that you've seen about drones um, and how they are changing people's lives. Can anyone give me a few examples of uh, positive or negative drone stories that you've seen in the news recently? Yeah. Um, okay, brilliant. Coast Guard um, Search and Rescue, Coast Guard uh, uh, Coastal Erosion Studies. There was a hand up at the back there. Yeah. Parcel delivery, brilliant, okay. Shark discovery. Shark discovery, okay, we might hear something a bit more about that later. Yes. Refugee camp 
Refugee camp mapping. Brilliant. Okay, so there's some great examples. I'm going to show you a few more. Hopefully this is going to come up. Here we go. Okay, so the obvious one, parcel delivery, came up. My view is that if the best thing we can think of for drones is to deliver our posts, then we're not doing a brilliant job. There's so many more exciting things, and hopefully we'll bring some of those to life for you this evening, that drones can do, and that we should be imaginative to, to think of. Here we go. Drones deliver champagne to an upscale hotel. Coast Guard drones, of course. Uh, this is a, a medical delivery drone um, developed by Matinet for delivering uh, medicines to remote communities. Of course, these are generally positive news stories. We can't give a lecture about drones without talking about some more naughty uses of drones that we've seen in the news, particularly very recently. This is incredibly timely, given the news yesterday of a, a potential drone sighting at Heathrow. We also see that drones have a long history of use within the military for reconnaissance and also uh, for weaponised purposes as well. And so um, there are all of these stories that abound in the news, uh, but what we don't see perhaps so much at the forefront of these stories are the, the way that drones are changing science, and that's part of the reason why we're here to talk to you this evening. This is just a graph that shows the number of papers published that contain the terms UAV or drone in the title over the last 15 years or so. Um, and as you can see, there's been a, a massive upsurge in the use of this technology within scientific disciplines over the last few years. And that's precisely for the reasons that we've just explained. The cost effectiveness, the adaptiveness, the responsiveness of the data that be, can be captured from this new proximal aerial viewpoint. Um, and the way that scientists can themselves now become the data collector, rather than relying on third-party sources we can collect the data that we want, we can control the timing of those acquisitions, we can control the accuracy of those acquisitions, and we can have much more control over things that formerly were out of our hands when we're relying on data from third-party sources. So these are the headlines I'd like you to see um, as people here at the lecture this evening. These are just recent papers published in Science, and just a handful of images showing you the diversity of other things that can be done with lightweight uh, drone technology. So everything from informing a new understanding of ecological systems on our planet to assessing the, the viability and the vulnerability of um, turtle nesting beaches and how that might affect conservation strategies for key species in, in areas of the world where sea levels are rising under climate change. Um, working with um, uh, developing countries to find new ways of quantifying forest resources and carbon flying into places where we simply can't collect data otherwise, so into the craters of active volcanoes, over the blowholes of humpback whales to collect samples um, of sputum to understand more about the ecology of these amazing beasts that we know nothing about. And of course, putting a drone into the hands of communities to do counter-mapping um, or indeed mapping of marginalised places that are off the map otherwise. Um, these are all incredibly powerful uses of drones that we really hear very little about um, if we look at those news stories. And so it's very easy to, for, the, for the general public to perhaps think that drones are dangerous, they're disruptive, um, they can do delivery, um, and, and there's something to be feared. Um, but 
This airspace that drones occupy has a long history of experimentation, of aerial experimentation through the ages, dating back more than 150 years to um, some of the pioneering aerial photographers of the 1860s. This guy, Felix Nadar, used to take photographs from a balloon over the the skyscrapes of Paris and and sell those photographs as pieces of artwork. Of course, in, in, in a military framework, we see carrier pigeons carrying cameras to collect reconnaissance data and the famous photographs captured in the immediate aftermath of um, the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco, which brought to the newspapers of the world the destruction that that natural event had caused. They were captured from a stack of about 17 kites by a guy called George Lawrence, um, who uh, precariously hung a huge fixed-frame camera from this stack of kites and flew it over the city to collect the data. Even in London, in the late 1800s, we see people experimenting in this near-air volume, in this place that the drone now occupies. And so this is a place that has long been an experimental volume. It's a place that drones now occupy, but in the past it was used for similar purposes by other aerial objects. And for that reason, I don't think that we should be fearful of the drone. Another reason why we perhaps should think about drones in a critical sense when we're engaging with them as a methodology is that many of the other geospatial technologies that we have become um, familiar with using, so Earth observation satellites, weather satellites, GIS, mapping technologies, all of these things were born out of a military origin. And even within the you know, memorable history, perhaps, of some people in the audience, those technologies were feared at the time that they were first conceived. Um, satellites were there to spy on us, to, to look at us from above. And now we see these as very positive types of technology that can deliver amazing data that have transformed our understanding of the Earth system and allowed us to answer really fantastic questions about the world, the the universe and our place in it, not just on this planet, but on other planets too. So I'm just going to finish this section by asking you very quickly to step away from this idea that drones should simply be something for commercial innovation, a tool that could be dangerous and destructive, and to think whether you can come up with some kind of imaginative and creative uses for drones in your head that you would like to share with us now. Can you think of something that could be done with a a simple off-the-shelf consumer drone that would benefit society hugely but which hasn't yet been done? Does anyone have any immediate inspiration? Okay, so uh, it's a difficult question. I'll leave that till the end. We can have a discussion. Yeah, okay. I'd like to see the scenes of accidents mapped using a drone so that they can then be cleared quicker and the motorway opened quicker. Yep. Brilliant idea, absolutely. Um, And if we engage with our creative side and our imaginative side, I'm sure that there are many more useful applications for drones that lie way beyond the examples we've seen in these last few slides. Delivery is just the tip of the iceberg. I know it's the exciting one that all of the news agencies think about, but I I really believe that there are many more exciting things that we can do with this technology um, if we just allow our minds to, um, uh, to be expansive and to consider those options. So we're going to take it from here to talk a little bit about the specific work that Karen and I do. So I'm going to talk a bit about what I do on the Great Barrier Reef in terms of marine ecosystems, and then Karen will talk about dry land systems over here. 
So here's, here's where I work, northern Queensland. You can see the Great Barrier Reef spanning the, the coast of northern Queensland. It's about 2,500 kilometres long of 3,000 individual reefs. The entire Great Barrier Reef is larger than the, than the UK. It's about the size of Italy. So it's a really, really big area that we're interested in. My main site where I've been working for about 20 years now is all the way down in the south. And if we zoom in, we saw this on one of my introductory slides, and I'm going to zoom in even further to this teeny tiny dot, which is Heron Reef. So this is an, an entire reef system in its own rights. And east to west, you're looking at nearly seven miles across, so it is quite large. And north-south, about two and a half miles. Now, I say quite large, but you saw it was just a teeny tiny dot on the Queensland coast. Now, if you imagine this as an upside-down dead rat, can you see the eye? Okay, so the eye of the dead rat is the island. All right, the island is 800 metres long and 400 metres in the north-south direction, so really, really quite small compared to the amount of coral and reef around this, and this is where I work. So let's have a look at some of the things that I do. What I'm really interested in understanding is how much live coral do we have on the Great Barrier Reef? Because you may have heard reports of major bleaching events and we've lost 95% of the Great Barrier Reef or some really, really big statistics that are sometimes blown out of proportion by the... Actually, all the time is blown out of proportion by the media. But there is also a lot of science that goes behind that. But one of the challenges that we have is that with 3,000 individual reefs, we cannot possibly know how much live coral we have, and we don't know. And the only way that we can start to understand this is to use remote sensing in small areas and then to scale that up to large areas as well. So some of the work that I do here is to try and understand, using drone photography and satellites as well, can we actually map the live coral? And so here we look at this photo, and it's a pretty photo, and I really do like the pretty photos from drones as well, but... As a scientist, I'm interested in the information that I can get out of that. So how much coral do I have? And can I train a computer to identify where the coral is compared to the algae or the sediment or anything else that's there? And it turns out you can to a certain degree. It's not 100% perfect, but it's something that we can do relatively quickly over relatively smallish areas, but much larger than when we're in the field doing these things underwater. So it's something that we're continually working on to try and see if, okay, if we can do this on Heron, can we do it on the next reef over? If we can do it in that general area, can we do it all the way up north? Now, this is another example from a the similar area in which I was working, and this photo contains a lot of sea cucumbers in it. Can you see the sea cucumbers? They're little black squiggles, all right? Um, might be a delicacy in Japan, but... Um, what the role that they perform on the reef is that they are like the hoover of all the bits and pieces of grit within the sand and they're turning over the sand constantly. And what we found through flying the drone, this was completely serendipitous, that we saw, wow, we can actually count the sea cucumbers. This is quite amazing. And no cool processing here, but just actually a lot of undergraduate students, which was kind of fun. Um, <laughs> we got them to count all the sea cucumbers go through... And, and yes, I, I could work on a program to figure this out as well, but sometimes it's a little quicker if you've got a class. 
And uh, so if you can have a look in the top left there, you can see how much of an area this particular drone flight covers. This is one single flight. The flight takes maybe about 20 minutes. In 20 minutes, we get all that data. And now you see all the dots on those two maps from 2016 and 2017 of where all the sea cucumbers are. Now, there were about 10,000 sea cucumbers in that small area of the reef. So can you imagine, if you scale that up to all of Heron Island or Heron Reef, how many sea cucumbers you could estimate are in that area and what that is meaning for carbonate cycling on the reef and in the sediments as well. And that's the sort of thing that we can do using a combination of the drone data and then the satellite data to really broaden that out as well. I'm also really, really interested in taking the temperature of the reef, okay? So we know we've got, we've got a lot of healthy corals, and this is what a healthy coral might look like. It has, um, it has little organisms that live within its cells that photosynthesize and create its own food source. When the water temperature increases, it spits that out, and effectively, the corals can starve. And this is what we see as coral bleaching. We know this is a major issue globally for the health of our reefs. Eventually, we end up with reefs that are overgrown by algae and we lose all that diversity. So what if we use a drone and this particular image from the same reef, you can see a wreck there that wasn't actually wrecked there but was put there to stop sediment going into the channel. And if you have a look on the right-hand side of that photo, you'll see a bright white dot. Yeah? So that is, is a boy. It's actually a series of pool noodles. You have pool noodles over here, like the long floaty things, um, with a thermometer underneath to measure the temperature of the water just in that spot, in one spot, because you can't have them everywhere. But what you can do then is to fly a drone with a thermal camera on it and measure everywhere what the temperature is. Now, can you see the horizontal line through the bottom of that photograph? So that's the incoming tide, and we know that we have differences of temperatures, and we can now measure and map the differential temperature across the reef as well. One of the other things that I'm really, really interested in understanding, and this goes as part of the story of understanding how healthy the corals are and what the temperature of the water is, is how deep is the water, because that affects how water moves around the reef as well. We also know that... Light varies, depends on how deep water is, right? You know, out in the deep ocean, really deep blue colour, because that's pretty much all the, all the light that's left. In shallower waters, you can see all the way through, because red and green light aren't absorbed in, short, in, in shallow depths. So we can use this understanding of how much light we've got available in the water to estimate the water depth. So we've done that. We've flown the drone over. We make all these measurements of what the light looks like. And then we use that in other areas to estimate what the water depth is based on the imagery that we have. So we don't, and this is a really, really cheap method of doing this as well. We don't need really expensive laser systems to be able to measure this depth. All right, I'm going to pass back to Karen. Thanks. So I'm going to take you somewhere completely different. Um, what? I'm can you hear me now? Okay, mm -hmm. good, great. Um, we're going to go to the deserts of the world. And um, I'm a self-confessed lover of shrubs and plants. Um, these systems to, to, the, uh, to the naked eye may seem um, very much less beautiful than a tropical rainforest, perhaps. 
which is where a lot of remote sensing work is done. And in fact, these systems are often neglected in remote sensing studies because they're very difficult to work in. What you notice about the ecology of these systems is that the plants are very sparsely distributed. Okay? They're very patchy, they're very small, they're quite woody, and sometimes they're not very green. And there's lots and lots of patches of bare soil between these plants. So that makes them very difficult to monitor uh, well from space because we have uh, inside a large pixel in a satellite lots and lots of mixing of these background elements and that masks the vegetation signal. So why do we need to monitor the vegetation in deserts? Well, it's important for several reasons. Uh, The first is that deserts cover a very large proportion of the land surface of the Earth, 40% or thereabouts at the moment. Um, And they're expected under climate change to expand. So by 2050 or 2100, they may well extend to cover 45 or 50% of the global land surface. So they're quite big contributors to uh, the global carbon cycle. That is the exchange of climatically relevant gases between the land surface and the atmosphere, which we know from climate studies and climate models we need to understand. And unfortunately, one of the things that we don't know is the contribution that dry lands make to that global carbon cycle. And the reason we don't know that very well is because they're very, they change very quickly. So from one year to the next, or from a wet season to a dry season, these systems can respond incredibly quickly. The ecology is amazingly special here. The, the bushes will green up very quickly in response to rainfall, and they'll die back to a, a, a lower productivity state in response to drought. And that can happen over the course of a season or two. So because they have these very highly variable climates, they have very highly variable rainfall from one season to another, one year to another, the carbon uh, that is stored and exchanged between the atmosphere and the land surface in these systems can change very profoundly from one year to the next. And so it's thought, uh, climate modellers have shown in fact, that these systems control the inter-annual variability in the global carbon cycle. They are responsible for controlling the change from one year to the next Uh, of the amount of carbon that's either uh, stored in the atmosphere or stored in the land surface. So we need to understand them better. And as I said, satellite data can't can't help us in solving that question very well at the moment because of the spatial resolution problem. So that's what I'm using drones to try to solve. Ultimately, what we want to answer with drones is can we measure the amount of carbon in these systems from the air and can we understand how it changes from one season to another? And drones offer us an an exceptional capability to do that because we can gather fine-scale data, we can see individual plants, we can even see individual leaves, actually, on plants, um, and we can respond to rainfall events. As soon as we know that it's raining in the desert, a few weeks later we can go out and collect our own data and we can do that responsively um, with a drone, which is something we can't do with other remote sensing techniques. In order to measure carbon in these systems from the air, we need to measure some key attributes of the plants. We need to know how tall they are, and we need to know how volumetric they are. So how bushy is the shrub, and how tall is it? And we use a a technique called photogrammetry to do that. Has anyone heard of photogrammetry before? Okay, so there's a few hands going up. Again, this takes us back to the history of some of those very early remote sensing studies. How many of you have been to a museum and tried out something like this, where you put your face into a mask and suddenly two separate photographs come together and produce a 3D picture in front of your eyes, a stereograph? 
Yes, okay, so most people have seen that. If you haven't used one of those, you may well have more recently used something like a Google Cardboard to do the same. And this is basically using the concept of image parallax. Um, so the capturing of two images from a slightly different viewpoint gives us information about the structure of an object. And that's exactly what we do from a drone in order to measure these attributes of these desert plants to calculate how much carbon they store. So this is how we do it. We firstly take a DJI Phantom Pro, a basic off-the-shelf consumer drone but equipped with a very good camera, and we program it to fly over these systems with about 78% overlap. We've done lots of experiments and we've worked out that that gives us the optimal overlap without producing too much overlap and therefore too high a processing cost. And we capture images like this. Each one of these plants that you see here are individual creosote shrubs in the desert of New Mexico, which is one of our study sites. The smaller dots are small tussocks of blue grana grasses, uh, which are also important plants, but very small, uh, some of them not much bigger than the palm of your hand. And the data we collect are sub-one-centimetre resolution, um, and we fly at about 30 metres uh, flying height. So hopefully this animation is going to work. This is how we fly. Uh, we use a crosshatch pattern, um, sometimes also called a lawnmower pattern, um, and we use the onboard uh, systems of the drone to program that flight so that we can um, control the overlap that we get given the certain camera parameters. And what you see then is a series of overlapping photographs uh, which overlap both from the front as well as from the side. And we feed those data into a photogrammetric workflow which is known as structure from motion photogrammetry. Structure from motion photogrammetry is a kind of new, new age version of the old school of photogrammetry. Rather than needing a specialised photogrammetrist to perform the, the parallax computations, what this does is it uses state-of-the-art computer vision to identify features in the photographs that are common to those photographs. And then it uses those features to match the photographs together and to compute the structure of the objects in those uh, images and to calculate the key parameters that we're interested in, which are height and volume. So let me show you an example, point cloud from one of our data sets. This is a similar site to the one I showed you in the 2D photograph. Um, here you can see the creosote shrubs surrounded by the, the blue grana grasses. You can also see these things that are sticking up in the field. These are some of our ground control points that we use to validate the quality of those products. And these point clouds, uh, just to give you an example of, <laughs> of what's involved with this process, we have to use a supercomputer to do this. Um, we're collecting hundreds of photographs per site, and our sites, to give you an example, are about 400 by 400 metres squared. Okay, so they're relatively small areas, but they're representative of, of the pattern of vegetation across an extensive ecosystem. Um, and over that 400 by 400 metre area, we might get 600 images, 2D images. And to calculate point clouds of this quality, um, uh, with millions of points per metre, uh, per, per hectare, sorry, um, it takes several hours to process on a supercomputer. So there's actually quite a lot of, of innovative work that needs to be done in order to go from the flat two-dimensional photographs through to a three-dimensional point cloud. Once we've got those data, we can't simply just say, OK, well, the plant is this high and it therefore contains this much carbon. We actually have to use ecological work to establish the relationship between height 
volume and carbon storage. And that actually requires me to do something which is very painful personally, which is chop down things. <laughs> um, so this is just an example of an experiment that we conducted um, uh, back in October in New Mexico. These are juniper trees. They're amongst the largest dry land plants, so they are actually kind of uh, medium height trees. Um, and here's uh, specimen number six, uh, which was one of the unlucky few. I should temper this by saying this area that we harvested was on a ranch, and the rancher was going to cut these down anyway. So we did him a favour and provided some free labour for a few days, and he looked at us as if we were crazy because we were weighing every single piece of woody material we cut down on a pair of bathroom scales. Um, so we chopped down about 20 of these trees of different heights and sizes and volumes. We weighed them. Um, and uh, we literally did take them down to the ground, so there was a lot of, of manual labour involved. And we, we can then establish the relationship between these remote sensing variables that we can measure from the drone and the key biophysical variables that we are interested in, which is the amount of dry biomass in these trees. Now, some of these relationships have already been established. For a lot of dryland plants, people have done this work already, but for, for some reason that we didn't understand before we tried, uh, no one had done it for one seed juniper, and now we know, because we couldn't walk for about three days after spending a week chopping these things down by hand. So we've done that relationship, we've calculated the model, and we know um, how the, the drone-based variables can relate to the key thing we're trying to work out, which is carbon. So where do we go from here? That's, a few trees in New Mexico doesn't tell us about the global carbon cycle, does it? So what we're doing is we're taking this a step further and we're exploiting the fact that pretty much every academic department on Earth now has a DJI Phantom or similar in their cupboard. And pretty much every academic department uh, in a geography or geology field has a drying oven in their department. So with, along with my postdoctoral research associate Andy Cunliffe, we have contacted global groups around the world and asked them if they would like to participate in our experiment collecting a small amount of drone data, sending that to us to process, and then harvesting a few plants if we don't already know those relationships between volume and biomass. What we hope um, and what we expect to find is that there is some kind of unifying relationship between biovolume and biomass for many of these desert shrubs, which means that hopefully if there's a nice straight line, regardless of species, regardless of site or climatology, the drone will become the kind of de facto way of actually um, quantifying carbon stored within these uh, ecosystems around the world. And then we'll use those data to validate the coarser grain satellite products that I talked about at the beginning. So at the moment, we've got a lot of groups involved. There's over 100 groups that we've contacted. They've all expressed an interest, but so far we've got 16 data sets in through the door, which isn't too bad given that we've only been doing this for a couple of months. So watch this space. Hopefully, within the next year or so, we'll have a, an excellent data set to share with the world about dryland carbon uh, cycling and dryland carbon storage. And I just want to finish by saying that um, hopefully by showing you that, I've shown you that the drone isn't what it's all about, really. The drone is the device to collect the data. But in order to get to this, we have to do loads of really interesting science around the edge. There's a lot of validation. There's a lot of GPSing. There's a lot of geomatics involved in getting to the end product. And so the drone is really just a device that sits... Uh, as an enabling tool that provides us with the data and allows us to answer some of these questions, which remain difficult to answer with other means. And with that, I shall hand over to... Um, Thank you. So, Karen. 
as, as Karen said, the drone is just part of the picture. And this is, is a graphic of what I like to view as the drone ecosystem. So this is actually where we put the drone in the, in the centre. But think about all the bits and pieces that make it up. And so what you see up there are all the logos of companies globally that have something to do with drones. It might be building the drone, it might be people who fly, people who teach, people who make the cameras, the GPS, the software, all different aspects of it. So there's a huge diversity of of careers, pathways, roles in which people get involved within the drone economy. And so it's a really, really exciting space to play in. When I look at that slide, I think, wow, diversity, that's insane. And then I come back to the question of why is it that so many times when both Karen and I go to an academic conference or a workshop, that this is what we see. And the diversity of the previous slide is somehow just disappearing when seriously, this is what it looks like from our viewpoint. And... I went to a conference oh, about 10 months ago or so, a massive drone conference, 8,500 people there. If your name was Michael, John or David, you had a higher probability of speaking at this conference than if you were a woman. That's insane, right? For 8,500 people, there were only a handful of women and most of the women were put in panel sessions. So this is something that's... That's quite an issue. And ironic for a conference with this as their theme. I think, what, is it, what does that mean if you take that literally, right? That's not where we're going, but it's interesting to see. And I wonder if part of it comes out of a stereotype that we see. And this, this picture I took, um, I took nearly two years ago now from Googling drones for girls and you get a similar, similar challenge when we look at drones for women because this is what we see. And so how can we promote using drones to girls and women when it says this is what you can do with your career? When, you know, why, not, why can't I just look like this? Because this is how it looks like when women and girls fly drones. There's nothing really that exciting. There's certainly no bikinis. When I'm out on the reef, it's not a bikini job. It's full sun safeness, you know. And in Australia, we know that out of all the drone pilots we have, so we've got thousands of drone pilots in Australia, about 1% of those are female. In the US, it's 4%. I don't have stats for the UK, um, I had a couple of guesstimates that came through recently, maybe about 3 4%. Not sure, but anyway, something pretty low. It's definitely not you know, anywhere close to a 50-50. And so we think about why that is. Like, is it something to do with gender stereotypes or is it something to do with you know, the role of a drone? And then this also brings me to think about diversity in terms of what we think of as, as science as a whole, right? So I'd like to play a bit of a game with you. Are you all familiar with Pictionary? Yeah? All right, so humor me for a second. Can you please close your eyes? All right, I want you to imagine you've just reached into the box of Pictionary cards and you pick it out, and as you pick it out, you look at the picture and you, you've pulled out a scientist. You need to draw a scientist. 
All right, so the time is on, and you're going to scribble down as quickly as you can what a scientist looks like so you can share with your playing partner. All right, open your eyes. Can you all stand up for me for a second? <laughs> now, be honest. Don't try and please us. If your scientist had a lab coat, please take a seat. If they have test tubes of coloured liquid or something like that, please take a seat. If they have crazy hair, please take a seat. If they have glasses, please take a seat. All right, so we have a little bit of diversity in here. Uh, just, just a little, right? When I do the same exercise with Google, this is what I see. So I'm sure your partners would have been able to guess that you were drawing a scientist because apparently this is what we see as a scientist. And why is this a problem? Because when I go into a school and I talk to students about what sort of subjects do they like and I they, they say, do you like science? No, I don't like science. Really? Are you sure? What do you think is science? Lab coat, crazy hair, test tubes, explosions. Well, what about my science? Like Karen and I have just spent the 40, last 40 minutes talking to you about the science that we love. And if people can't see that as science then how can they know that they love that? So part of our mission is to share the diversity of science so we understand that there's all these cool things that can be done and then share the diversity of people that can and should partake in this. And I'd like to suggest that high-vis is the new lab coat to start with because often this is how we look. And today, we spent the morning with three different schools um, from the local area running workshops, showing them what it's like as a day in the life of a geospatial scientist. So they, they came into this room, we had, we had some drones, and they, they work out, first of all, the safety aspects of flying a drone. They learn to manually fly their drone and then code it to undertake an aerial survey mission, which is what the students are doing down in the, in the bottom photo there. And this is what we do to share what it is that we love about science and to break some of this mould that a scientist has to be wearing a white lab coat, but also to show girls in particular that this is absolutely something that they can do and then maybe we can increase some of those diversity statistics because the bottom line is that if we are not using 100% of our talent pool, we're shortchanging ourselves. And that's across all levels of diversity, race, colour, sex, religion, whatever you want to look at. It's really, really important that we look across all of those areas. And so, of course, we teach people to fly, but it is really all about the mapping. We use the drone as a bit of a lure because apparently people love drones and they come in and think, yeah, okay, we're going to learn all about drones, but really we teach them all about mapping as well and have that in as a bit of science by stealth. I've turned off my microphone again. Sorry, I, I've got a slight cold and I've been coughing in the back there. I didn't want you to <laughs> experience that over the mic. So just to, to, to finish off um, and to sum up what we've said, hopefully through those examples of terrestrial remote sensing from drones and coastal and coral reef remote sensing from drones, you've seen a slightly different news story that uh, can add to some of those other examples we gave at the beginning. The drone is, is a device that's part of a much broader 
geospatial revolution. There's, there's so many things going on in this space that allow us to do this science. And the drone is, is really just one central part of that. But there's lots of other innovations that are happening um, in, in computing, in processing, um, and, for example, in, in bringing photogrammetry into the digital age as another example. I think it's, it's fair to say that um, both Karen and I uh, would be really keen to see the drone industry represent the diversity of society as a whole in the future. That would be a dream of mine. Even at undergraduate level, when I teach students who are 20, 21 years old, and I say to them, who wants to come and have a look in my drone lab? I notice that girls are really shy to put their hands up because they think that this is a kind of geek thing and it's not cool and they don't want to be seen to be interested in it because they're shy about what guys might think. And I think that's really sad because anyone can do this. It's, it's really great fun. It's a fantastic enabling device that allows us and everybody else indeed to get out into the field and collect their own data. And particularly in remote sensing, that for me makes it a revolutionary technology. Um, never before have scientists been able to go out and collect their own data and to time the data acquisition and to design all kinds of experiments about what happens if I do it this way versus what happens if I do it that way. All to, you know, in the past, we were just offered a product and that was what we had to accept. We don't have to do that now. So it's a fantastic scientific discipline that this opens the doors to and we're only just really... Uh, at the tip of the iceberg of what I think is a, a fantastically exciting future for drones in science. Um, so I hope that encapsulates um, uh, the spirit of what we're here to talk to you about this evening. And if anybody has got any questions to ask us, then we'll be really delighted to ask, answer them. Thank you. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.